I want to say that one of my earliest memories is this memory of a forest and seeing a deer like when I was a kid. But the way I remember it is more like the deer was surrounded by light. I don't know if it's my memory or if it's my imagination. I must have seen or wanted to see a deer because this is what I remember as this deer like as if it's like a god in the forest. It's surrounded by light. It's, it's like surrounded with this yellow bright light in the middle of forest and I'm just looking at it. This is Erica Hauser, and you're listening to If You See a Deer. We had a farm, and we had um, like 160-something acres. So, and there was a lot of deer on it. I didn't know it was that big. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not anymore. I mean, you know, you know, but, but um, uh, I knew those, I knew the, the, the fields, the land very well because, you know, my brother and I just spent a lot of time out there, especially in the summers. Um, but, you know, we always had deer. We always had deer out there. Um, they didn't really come near the house much, but they were out there because there was so much acreage and there was not a lot of folks. There was this sort of joke in my family. So they'd be like, oh, there's a deer. We've, you know, we're driving. My brother and sister or dad or whatever would say there's a deer. Uh-huh. And I would always be too late to see uh, it. I would never figure out where it was huh. before it was. Back in 2019 or so, I started to think about deer a lot, and I ended up writing a book about the relationship between them and humans. It's called The Age of Deer, and it's being published in January 2024 by Catapult Books. In this podcast, Tyler Carter and I, we're friends from the days when we were both MFA students in poetry, will take a look at some of the people and ideas that I explored in the book. People have very long and deep cultural ties to deer, but in this episode, Struggling, we're going to start by looking at some of what goes on between deer and people today, often the kinds of connections and struggles that happen between anyone who lives close together sharing a space. So when we bought the house um, and we, we had no idea about the deer situation around that neighborhood, the first day we came to our house, the deer just magically came over and started running and circling around in our yard and then they just ran away. And I felt very magical about it. Sveta Banya lives in Blacksburg, Virginia, and is an assistant professor of rhetoric, professional, and technical writing at Virginia Tech. She'd only lived there about a year when we talked, and in that time, she'd given a lot of attention to the neighborhood deer. Their relationship started as soon as Sveta and her husband moved in. So during that day, I was worshiping, like before we enter the house, we worship. Uh, so I'm religiously Hindu, so if I've not told earlier. So, and I felt like, you know, and 
and I offered them food and apple for the first time. And they, you know, the next morning it was gone. And so it's sort of like they would just come out and hang out and they, you know, they would just be there. There were about seven deer at first, but now the group is up to 13, all does and their offspring. And then they would come out and eat and then sometimes graze around our yard. And then in the evening, just sit there and relax. And that's like, that gives me so much peace. Um, And I just like, and that gives my husband also peace. Like we both are on the same page. Um, So it just, uh, and that's why we don't want to fence our yard uh, because we want to make sure that we are supporting them. And then I kind of like almost think like we coexist together because they just occupy that space, you know? They come and they eat and they relax. Sveta and her husband think of the deer as delightful visitors. They're inclined to support the deer and they decided not to fence their yard, but it's not always easy to share the space. And then I did start a garden uh, and at the beginning, they would, you know, they didn't get into the garden. But when the garden started to grow, they figured out how to jump, how to eat everything and just go. And at one point, I was stealing vegetables from them. <laughs> they were not stealing vegetables from us. So and then I just like, OK, just leave it. Just eat whatever you can, uh, because it was not uh, I was a little angry with them at that point. But. They're animals, they also need to eat. So yeah, that's, it's just very interesting. She posts on social media a lot about the deer. Yes, I do on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. And I make like <laughs> tiny videos of those and it's everywhere. Like every, I post them everywhere. I think like people by this time know that I feed the deers, um, but my neighbors, um, my neighbor who is a farmer really doesn't like deer. And then he keeps on saying that, I know you like feeding the deer. I think he says this jokingly, but he said like uh, white-tailed deer, which are the ones that I feed, they are the most uh, dangerous and they kill more people because of the accidents. Sveta is one of many thousands of people in America who like feeding deer and having what she called small moments of communication with them. Deer for Sveta bring a spiritual benefit. She associates them with stories about Lord Shiva, and their presence brings these stories to mind. And as deer often do, they also bring a certain amount of conflict. But during also that time, I heard that the police were culling the deer. So um, there were like shots that were heard in our neighborhood. So yeah, I think like the, it's interesting that there are so many deers that coexist with human. And I find that fascinating, even their buildings. And I feel like they don't encroach our space. We have encroached them. The deer are teething chewing on fences, the corners of houses, every branch they can reach, leaving their uncanny occlusion imprinted on the birches and pines. We wake up to bite marks on the porch railings, the gravestones, cracked mirrors on our cars, the whole town marked with their teeth. 
Most people have their own deer stories that involve deer in the road, deer in the garden, sometimes deer crashing into a house or a school. They do have conflicts with people. When I started researching my book, I soon realized there's also a conflict between deer and a lot of the habitats they live in, the actual trees and plants that surround them, and even the soil and other animals. They seem so peaceful, but a lot of ecologists see them as a threat because they can be a very big problem for forests. So um, deer prefer some species over others for whatever reason, maybe it's nutrition or habit or whatever, but they, the fact is they like some species more than others. And so when their populations grow, those are the first things that we begin to see declines in. This is Jay Kelly, an ecologist and professor who took me on a walk in the woods near where he lives in New Jersey. I wrote about that in my book. He studied the effects deer can have on ecosystems, and in this field, it's always important to know how many deer are present, or more accurately, how densely populated they are. Deer at a low density aren't going to cause many problems. When deer populations begin to get above natural background levels, the first thing that starts to happen in terms of impacts is, is the, their preferred browse species start to disappear. Usually when deer begin to get to densities around 20 per square mile or so, you start to see impacts throughout the forest ecosystem because not only are those preferred species impacted, but vegetation as a whole begins to be consumed at excessive levels. And then everything that depends on that vegetation, which is everything else in the forest essentially, um, starts to show impacts as well. Where we met in central New Jersey, the deer density was more than 100 per square mile five times what Kelly had said was the threshold for ecosystem damage. The ability of oak trees to reproduce was at risk. So were birds. So the herbivore insects like caterpillars of moths and butterflies, for example, are highly specialized to eat on one or a small number of species of plants. And so if the plants begin to decline, you start to see the butterflies and moths decline. And then the birds that eat the butterflies decline. So you, the ecologists refer to this as cascade effects, you know, going through the ecosystem like a waterfall with one thing leading to another all the way up or down the food chain as it might be. The spot where Jay and I walked together was one of those little patches of woods between highways and shopping centers, a piece of woods that's far from pristine, just kind of forgotten looking. But what Jay was saying was that the impacts of deer are a very serious problem across the eastern U.S. Um, we've been doing research showing that the the loss of the vegetation also impacts the microclimate conditions in the forest because it, the absence of the vegetation leads to changes in the relative humidity and temperature patterns. So that can lead to impacts for, of conditions for plants that are germinating or animals that are trying to hibernate or thermoregulate through the winter, for example. Um, so it's really profound, uh, especially when you get to really excessive levels where the forest is denuded of, of anything in the understory. And unfortunately, that's pretty typical. Uh, in areas really throughout the Northeast, uh, corridor from Boston down to DC or West Virginia, primarily in fragmented and suburbanized landscapes, um, because those are the places where deer populations uh, reach the highest levels in general. He explained that long term, if you don't have a healthy understory in the forest, you're facing a future in which older trees die and there are no young trees to replace them. So we're actually losing our forests in piecemeal fashion at this point. And if these trends of deer populations continue, we're gonna be losing our forests to a much greater degree in the future in the coming decades if this uh, can't be addressed. And so it's really alarming and, and 
it's essentially utterly profound and devastating what's going on in, in those worst areas where the deer populations are the most excessive. This is scary for sure, and it felt scarier when standing in those beat-up-looking woods where things do feel pretty obviously off-kilter. I grew up in Pennsylvania and live in Virginia now, and most of my life the forest has been a background that I've taken for granted. But Jay's message is that we can't take it for granted. It could actually fade away because of deer and climate change and other factors. I read a lot of other research that echoed what Jay told me. If you go looking, you can find thousands of studies on deer in habitats, and the majority of them give you a pretty negative view of deer. But let's back up for a second and listen to Jay again. When deer populations begin to get above natural background levels... Natural background levels. That's a really key phrase. What does natural mean when we're talking about an ecosystem? We use that word as though we all agree on what it means, and I'm not picking on Jay here. People do this all the time. But in the deer science world, people don't agree. There's no real consensus about how many deer there should be, or how many there once were, or what natural or balanced really is. Jay spoke to this when he was telling me about some historical data on land use in New Jersey that he used to try to isolate deer as a factor in forest health. As fortunate as we are to have this data going back to the mid-20th century when deer populations were so much lower and invasive species weren't present at scale in our landscapes, you know, it's a valuable reference set to see how those two factors have changed our forests. But we can't say that that's the natural condition of our forests because our forests had been altered, like you said, for hundreds of years earlier by the colonial uh, uses of the landscape, you know, booting out the Native Americans and exterminating wolves and cougars and fragmenting our forests for hundreds of years prior. So even the, the baseline conditions that we used had legacy impacts of all those factors that we couldn't possibly account for. We just don't know what things were like in the past. Here's Bryce Hanbury, another scientist whose field actually is historical ecology, trying to figure out how ecosystems worked hundreds or thousands of years ago. What I'm looking for in a forest, because this is what they were like historically, is an understocked forest with lots of large diameter trees, uh, a limited midstory, and a good herbaceous layer. Essentially a grasslands layer underneath some large diameter trees. She's describing something called an open forest, which she says was a lot more common before European settlement. Here's where I really started to feel my mind stretching. On my walk with Jay, he'd pointed out how empty the understory of the forest was, and he'd said, you shouldn't be able to see 10 feet into this forest. He was imagining a much denser, darker woods, and that's what he advocates for. He thinks the forest is too open. But for Bryce, the ideal forest is the opposite of that. It's very open, more like an African savanna. Open forests in North America before 1500, she says, had big, widely spaced trees with plenty of sunlight falling between them onto a lush meadow of grasses and flowers, a place full of insects and birds. Flowering plants are helpful for supporting insects and the birds who eat those insects. 
The birds also forage on the seeds of grasses and the fruits of flowers. Bryce gave me a map she created showing vast swaths of the eastern U.S. covered with these open forests, as much as 300 million acres from Florida to Maine and from the Chesapeake to well past the Mississippi. She believes this is what the ecosystem was like at one time, and she thinks that the loss of so much open forest is one reason that birds and pollinators are declining. If that's true, then a force that thinned out younger trees might be seen as a good thing rather than a bad thing. And of course, a lot of scientists have singled out deer as that force. Bryce's work has attacked a lot of common assumptions about deer. What's the right number of deer? And whether they really keep forests from regrowing. Other ecologists strongly believe that we have a big problem with tree regeneration. But Bryce actually wishes that deer would eat more trees. If fewer young trees could make it to maturity, she says, perhaps our forests would look more like those ancient ones she studied. More open, more sunlit, with far fewer trees, and many more flowers, butterflies, birds. Obviously, this is a deep debate about what the world should look like, and in the ecology field, the nitty-gritty of this disagreement has to do with research methods, sampling problems, and which data you incorporate into your analysis. Those are the points where other researchers take issue with Bryce's work. I'd asked her for an interview because her research stood out like a sore thumb from all those studies showing how destructive deer could be. But I wasn't expecting the conversation to turn everything upside down like it did. Should we or should we not be able to see 10 feet into the forest? How about 1,000 feet? Bryce looked at the same situation that others had described as a calamity and claimed it was not a problem at all. We're not seeing the effects of 25 to 30 million deer, so maybe we need three times as many. Flip it on its head. Is it a problem or is actually a restoration process that's happening uh, with deer? When I asked her how her perspective could be so different from the prevailing wisdom, her answer wasn't just about research methods. Instead, it went deep into the question of worldviews and how people are trained to have certain values. My research about herbivory is diametrically opposed to probably everyone you've spoken to. I have an open forest perspective where Everything is based on trees controlled so that grasses and different forbs or flowering plants can be there. That is actually what is critical to our declining bird species and insect species. This lack of forbs, too many trees, is the real problem. And I think there is maybe a deficiency in training, too. The information about historical e ecosystems aren't in textbooks, they aren't in classes. You have to spend the time to learn on your own or are you just going to carry these uh, conventional ideas that more trees are better? Ecology describes a web of relationships where one change can affect everything else. So the question of a baseline becomes really important. What are we measuring against? How do we locate a baseline? Bryce has her own baseline that makes her see deer in a certain way. 
She's glad we have lots of deer. Other researchers, I asked, thought her work was very flawed and even compared her views to climate change denial. They were so forceful that I wondered if I should just stay away from this whole debate. But what fascinates me about this is how often we use the idea of balance in nature to form our judgments about all kinds of things. I'm interested in that task of trying to remember the deep past, the reminder that the woods we take for granted are so very different from what they used to be like. And I love that deer could lead to these questions about what normal or natural even means. of us are living with a lot of deer. We interact in many different ways. There's definitely a side of the relationship that has to do with appreciation and love, but there's a lot of aggravation too. How do deer impact your operation here? And what do you do to deal with them? I was talking with Michael Carter Jr., who's a farmer in Orange County, Virginia. Will any deer be listening to this? <laughs> Podcast. Well, they're not. They're us. not the target audience. Okay. Let's put it so, that way. Deer are here quite a lot. Yeah. And deer are an uh, utter nuisance. Um, last my first my first official experiences with deer, where I really noticed them, was when I was planting this okra that I, okra that I got, and I planted it, and it germinated just fine. And I came back the next day, and it was all bitten down to the ground. Mm. And I saw some deer markings of defecation and I was like, okay turn it so they ate that that's kind of how our relationship started so uh, <laughs> not, not on a good note not on a good note and you know ever since then last year we planted maybe 30 different varieties of crops and they probably ate about 12 of them michael specializes in growing african crops and he also has a nonprofit that supports black farmers in the region Luckily, deer don't seem interested in some of his vegetables, like amaranth and Nigerian spinach. Others, like okra and beans, get eaten to the ground. He told me that if he looks on the bright side, he can take all the deer damage as a weird kind of compliment. But I saw that as a sign of nutrition, mm. that my crop is healthier than your crop. So then the deer gave me a sense of validation of what I was doing. But I don't need that much validation. I'm good. <laughs> so I just need a smidgen of validation, not a whole row, or 13 rows of validation. He's thinking about how to protect his crops with fencing and some more creative methods, too. I would also like to pile on the pipeline as well, plant either some native plants or throw out some, some brassica seeds, some kale, some, plant some hostas or something to divert them away from... Uh. Stuff they like that so, you, yeah. don't, you don't yeah. need to mm-hmm. have. But, right. like a little buffet going on. Mm-hmm. And everybody's happy. Yeah. You know, you're not messing with my stuff. I ain't got to shoot you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, good luck. I yeah. hope that works. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's been our experiences with it. Um, I embrace it. Not willingly all the time, but I'm like, you know, this is nature. And I've got to figure out how to work with nature. Mm. 
It's a problem faced by farmers around the country, and many aren't as patient as Michael. They just get permits to shoot the deer that get into their fields. If you're a corn grower in the Midwest, the local deer might be getting the majority of their food by eating your crops. And hunters might be looking at those corn-fed deer with stars in their eyes. They're known for being big, with record-setting antlers. In fact, a lot of hunters plant corn and other types of crops to attract deer and help them grow bigger. It's one of those circular, contradictory things that's pretty typical of our relationship to deer. Anyway, aside from the fact that deer eat plants, worrying ecologists, annoying gardeners, and causing losses for farmers, there are other big conflicts between our species. One playwright found a deeply absurd story lurking within a common deer-human interaction. is now asleep, probably snoring, probably loudly. Cynthia is still driving. Suddenly, she screeches to a halt, gasping, and there's a jarring thud. Ken wakes up, startled, as if from a nightmare. What? Oh, my God! Cynthia gets out of the car. A bleeding deer is on the ground in front of the car. The animal is as disturbingly realistic as possible. It's groaning horribly. Oh, my God, shit! Jesus, that, that sound gets out of the car. Shit, shit, shit! Ken sees the deer. Oh no, that's a shame. Oh shit, it came out of nowhere! At least it didn't go through the windshield. It could have killed us both. Are you okay? I'm okay, are you okay? Oh my god, this is a nightmare. I'm okay, fuck! Shit, Kenny, shit! She kneels down by the deer. No, don't! I'm not gonna touch the blood, don't! Oh god, her eyes are open! Oh, it's a her? I can tell from the sound. It's dying, honey. Get back in there. No, grab me the... Oh, will you you grab me the towel? In the back seat, there's a towel. For what? For the blood to stop the blood. No, honey, you gotta let it die. Of course I'm not gonna let it die. Who are you? She's bleeding. Get the towel. Don't yell at me. You don't always have to yell. Kenny! All right, all right. He goes to the back seat and grabs a towel. Groaning from the deer is intensifying. Come on, hurry! I'm coming. I'm getting it. She's losing blood. She won't make here, it. Here, here. My God, that sound is excruciating. He hands her the towel, which she presses down on the deer. Oh, Jesus, poor thing. I'm so sorry, baby. I'm so sorry. Did it dart? I it... swear I didn't mean to. I would never have meant to hurt you. Cynthia, I'm... did it dart in front of the car? Yes, out of nowhere. Then it should be apologizing to us. What? for dragging us into its suicide attempt. Excuse me? I mean, look at the bumper, my God. Hello? Do you not see the bleeding animal in front of you? It's not our fault if it ran into the middle of the street. Ken, come on, help me get her up. Just drive around it, we don't have to. No, we gotta take her with us. What? Why? If we leave her here, she'll die. And, And they'll take her to the wolf preserve. Ken, they'll throw her into the wolf preserve and she'll be eaten by wolves. Well, don't wolves have to eat? That's an asinine thing to say. Help me get her up. Cynthia, get back in the car, honey. That was an excerpt from the play Deer by Aaron Mark. The story ends up going to some really extreme places. Cynthia's sense of responsibility... 
Ken's practical tendencies, they both end up leading to absurdity and then to mayhem. But Aaron Mark told me the play was inspired by a real-life episode that a friend of his experienced, hitting a deer and then arguing with the other person in the car about what they were supposed to do with this animal that was dying in front of them. These things happen all the time, and they add up to a sense many people have that deer are a problem and we should have fewer deer. As I wrote about in my book, a lot of communities end up culling deer to try to get some of these problems under control. It's controversial and it's painful, and it's one of the places in our society where the idea of natural becomes so hard to grasp that it almost seems meaningless. And as the book also investigates, the number of deer we have now is directly related to human actions, including a period of seriously overhunting deer and then a later period of restocking them to help them rebound. Well, I think one of the things that, you know, to go back to one of your questions, like how has it changed for me? How did the project kind of, you know, change my thinking or take itself in a direction that I hadn't really planned on? I, I did not anticipate how many things about this topic I would end up feeling just very ambivalent about, like truly on the fence. I did not realize how many points at which this topic of deer would kind of lead me into a, a divide or a disagreement that I really could not resolve. And um, what is that disagreement? I would say hunting is a divide. It's, a, you know, it's something people very much disagree about. So is this issue of, you know, should we be trying to control deer populations through not really hunting, but culling, like professional killing, that is, to me, impossible to resolve. Mm. I can't imagine having to come up with an answer mm -hmm. to that, yeah. <laughs> being yeah. responsible for that answer, right. you know? Yeah. Just got out of my car, and there are three deer in the neighbor's yard just staring at me. Uh, they sort of look at me starting starting to run away but then changing their mind they're not really scared of me they're used to me i see them all the time okay now they're slowly walking away they've had enough of my voice usually i don't stare at them and talk like this i guess but i'm sure i'll see them again they're definitely not in a hurry to go away they're just keeping their distance i'm walking a little closer to them yeah, they're not even running. They're walking. They're looking at each other. What do I do? What do you guys want to do? We're used to each other. They're my neighbors. All right. So here we have 
I'm kind of scraggly looking deer in the front yard eating the ample grasses, otherwise known as weeds, here in this part. <laughs> Wait, that's a baby. Oh, that's a baby. Not a tiny baby, but like, maybe that's why it looks so scraggly. White spots on the head. They're just chomping away. Super psyched. Oh, but now somebody opened the back door and now they ran away. Rodrigo. He opened the back door and now they're running away. Oh. They were so happy. They're just looking around. Oh, bummer. Scholarship. Late this afternoon, I tried to find a poem about a deer running or sleeping or staring back at me through the page. Or about the memory of a deer running through the train station or down a wooded path along the river. Unsuccessful, I wrote my own. In our next episode, we'll go back in time and look at some of the roots of our current relationship to deer, how it got so complicated and so full of struggle. You've been listening to If You See a Deer. This podcast is written and produced by Erica Hauser and Tyler Carter and edited by Tyler Carter. Music is by All My Heroes and Blue Dot Sessions. Our guests were Sveta Banya, Jay Kelly, Bryce Hanbury, and Michael Carter Jr. Cassandra de Alba read her poem, The Deer Are Teething. I read my poem, Scholarship. Deer stories were contributed by Ola Svatek, Seth Hauser, and Rachel Keast. We also heard part of the play Deer by Aaron Mark. Thanks to Aaron and to actors Bill Lasur and Rhonda Hewitt. Big thanks to Mary Garner McGee at WTJU-FM in Charlottesville, Virginia, and to the Virginia Audio Collective. <laughs>